This is a podcast by The Straits Times. This is one of two podcast episodes featuring full interviews with key architects who explain how HDB designs for Singapore's public housing flats have evolved over the decades. They are linked to a special infographic by The Straits Times. You can find the link to it in our show notes. You are listening to a podcast by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. We see public housing all around us. They are in older towns such as Queenstown and Topayo, and in newer ones like Pongo and Bidadari. 8 in 10 Singaporeans live in HDB flats. But how have HDB blocks evolved over the decades? What has worked out and what hasn't? So I've invited some experts to help me connect the dots in the evolution of HDB towns and block designs. I'm here with guests Ku Pingbing and Belinda Huang. They are the design duo behind the iconic Pinnacle at Duxton in Tangjun Paga. So, at that point in time, what did public housing look like and what do you think was lacking or could be improved on? Interestingly, at the time when Pinnacle at Duxton was about to be launched, there were surplus uh, flats in Jurong. So HDB was quite worried that this being launched in the city centre at multiple times the cost of those in Jurong, that people would not pick up the flats. So then they had a thought about a BTO scheme for the Pinnacle at Duxton. So we were at first doing the design development and then suddenly it turned to a BTO and maybe a phase development. And that really uh, meant that we had to do quite a bit of uh, extra work, build a show flat for the first time in the history of uh, uh, the housing board. They had a show gallery, you know. I I think... um. It's not that something was lacking. I think we were just part and parcel of an evolution in HDB. And if you talk about community spaces, it's always been existing and really in the forefront of whatever HDB did. But when you talk about community spaces in a highly dense environment like Duxton, I think it required a little bit more thinking and, and you know creative thoughts about it. One other thing we did quite differently was for typical uh, HDB flats, you would have columns sometimes in the middle of the unit. And we thought that if we were to allow people to age in place, meaning that they can renovate their, their flats over time, could we not put all the structures to the edges of the building plan? And we were very fortunate that the we got a lot of support from the HDB uh, engineers at that time. And we managed to create a plan that was fully open, uh, which meant that you could take away all the internal walls and you just have one big universal plan if, let's say, you were a single person and that's your whole flat, you know, and we thought that, wow, that was amazing. I guess what, we were what, designing what? for us. <laughs> <laughs> At that point in time, was um was it the norm to have structural columns in, in, yeah. in, you, in the you, middle of your house? Yeah. Well, uh, it's not in the middle, but somewhere. <laughs> and then I, there will be brick walls. I think at that moment, there'll be plans that are designed exactly for the number of rooms. And by shape of the plan, when it kinks in and out, you won't have a regular shape. But we were conscious of having a really simple form within the plan so you could have a massive studio if you wanted to. So it was intentional in that sense. So meaning the interior walls are hackable? Yeah, yes. they are drywalls. So they are precast walls that you could take away without affecting the structure. For yeah. almost all the walls that's interior, that's yeah, inside. for the room, except for your neighbor's room, And I think for the toilets, you know, we also did something uh, uh, very interesting, which was to um, 
design the two toilets as if they were one. That means we had one shaft and try to make it as simple as possible to construct. And we even thought that some people might want to combine their toilets to make a very big one. And we thought that that could be a possibility that we could do that. And I think having a plan that you could age in place meant that, you know, generations of people living in these flats could just transform their flats according to their needs. And I think, of course, the creation of the sky gardens on the intermediate levels and upper levels. So a HDB, a pinnacle at Duxton represented uh, like a 50 years of journey by HDB. Uh, it's also the first time they hit 50 stories, like a super high-rise, high-density living in the middle of the city, which allowed us the opportunity to create these sky gardens. I think for the sky gardens, it had multiple functions. I, I think the main thing about it that we, we should not forget that it is public housing. So at that time, all public spaces is not just for the residents. It's like a void deck that you have in our typical HEBs today. So we had to be mindful of the security as well. So if we start bringing public spaces up to the 50th story or up to the 25th story, it was important to take that into consideration. And that's why we actually combined the entire sky garden into the entire strip that connected all seven blocks together. And the good thing that came out of it is that we could also save on the M&E spaces as well. Just imagine if you build individual towers, each tower will have its own water tank, will have its own generator. But the moment we could link it together, we could put these only in three blocks. What it does then, it frees up more space for facilities and public use. And I think just to backtrack a little bit about the bridges. So we thought that being public housing you know, having very controlled budget and all this, we should do something special, but it needs to be done in a very simple way. So uh, we thought that if you could make seven very efficient, very highly buildable towers and then connected them with bridges, that became like just a very simple idea of putting two of these uh, architectural elements together to then create something uh, that resembled like a, a screen in a city, framing the city and looking very porous, and from different parts of the city, it looks very dynamic, looks very different. And every unit inside the towers, when they look out, to be unblocked for as far as you can see. And that's why we kept arranging different ways of putting the blocks until we found this particular combination. And one more thing about the bridge is that it provides a special escape. Typical high-rise, you know, you need to run down in case there's a fire or something like that. In this case, you can run to the sky bridges and hold up there like a place of safety or you can like run across to the next block and continue your escape journey. So then you created multiple journeys for escape. I think psychologically, that means that you're never more than 25 stories from an escape route. 12.5 stories. <laughs> 25? That's right. 12 and a half stories <laughs> from the escape Yeah, bridge. so that, uh, that made the bridges perform multiple functions. So sharing mechanical spaces, creating escape, uh, having an, a unique identity. And I think uh, that goes back to our original aim of making this uh, architectural piece that would be different from all other uh, architectural uh, works in Singapore. Mm. But surely at such a high height, there must be some like architectural constraints or challenges to just put in a bridge there, right? Were there any of these challenges? 
Yeah, you know, at first, our first original design had curved bridges. <laughs> I think that after some thought... That would uh, be nice. Yeah. <laughs> but then it became, it became straightened out. But we thought that conceptually that you know, whether it was curved or straight, straightened out, it was the same concept. Functionally, I mean, it's the same kind of challenge in any other project, really. So it's something that we have to go through when we get the consultants in, the structure in, and seeing what is the most effective. The challenge is that it is public housing. So you have to make sure that you are not embellishing it too much. I think working with the engineers at that time uh, was also very interesting because when we worked with the engineers for the bridges, the idea to connect two buildings into one big building using the longest bridges to make the buildings more stable so that the movement between buildings were reduced. So then the, the bridges then had another function, which was to stabilize the, the towers, which meant that the movement joints in the bridges were much smaller. So something technical like that, if you're just walking along the bridges, you wouldn't notice any of this. But if you you were keen, in some of these small bridges, you can see a gap and that allows the movement uh, even during the earthquake. And another challenge was maybe the, the lightning. Instead of the normal point uh, lightning conductors, we use a cable similar to what they would do in those high-tension cables that goes across landscapes, you know. They have this one cable that will catch the lightning. We have this similar style at lightning. The roof. At the roof. Oh. <laughs> so I guess if you don't really go and look for it, you you probably won't spot it. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you look for it, you can see it. Uh, and there's uh, also like wind warning. So we've got this wind sensor that if the wind gets too strong, when we were designing, we thought, oh my goodness, the wind might get very strong up there. But actually... It never did. It never did yeah. very strong. I mean, there were a few things that we anticipated. One, one of them was like, oh, you know, the, the bridges are going to be super crowded and there's 1,848 families coming in. But every time we're there, whatever time of, of the week or the day, it's actually very peaceful. Yeah, you, one, don't, don't, you don't see a lot of people. Yeah. One thing we appreciate about these bridges up in the sky is that there is a sense of peace and calm even though you're like in the middle of the city. And I thought that, wow, for a space like that to be available for someone living in the middle of the city was actually pretty important, right? Like um, you've, you could just escape into a very peaceful sanctuary, you know, just by taking a lift. This fifty-story roof garden could it be more? Could it be made into a more active space for people? I would say yes. I think twelve years ago, it is the first one that came up. As what Pingming said, they had a lot of concerns, right? But I think uh, moving forward, and we know that technology allows us as well. We would have loved to have the roof terrace to be a, a lot more green a lot more trees because one of the things that they were worried about is trees being ripped off in the wind, right? And also allowing people a bit of freedom on how they can play on it as well. So you'll find that if you go to the Pinnacle at Duxton, the most alive level is actually the third story because third story is like any void deck, the same rules, no rules, just use it, right? And so people will meet there, the pets are there, they'll eat there, lunch there. But you don't see that on the other levels. 
I think having spaces that are more participatory. So, if, for example, if we had you know a cafe, uh, with an art space or like a learning space up there, it meant that people could hang out. And I think this whole idea of hanging out could be explored further for such spaces rather than a space for just walking and contemplation. Could it also be a space that was a bit like a living room or a dining room, you know, uh, similar to a lot of uh, very popular spaces in the city where, you know, people love to just hang out, meet a friend or do some self-study, you know, uh, buy some concert tickets, write a poem, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> When you guys first submitted your design um, for this competition, do you expect it to be like such an iconic building? You know, like years from now, people are still going to look at it and like, wow, look at this. We had this in like the 2000s or stuff like that. Were you That's, expecting it to be iconic? Or? Well, it is iconic in a way because by project, it is very special. A 50-story public housing is unheard of in the world, right? So, so yes, we expect it to be special. But I think I, I didn't expect to have uh, so many conversations about it over the years. Like, for example, we were actually invited to Graz as well in Austria to speak about it. And they found it such an interesting topic to talk about public housing and high-rise for them, right? Yeah. And just yesterday, uh, I was speaking to some professors from a Spanish university that was interested in high-intensity, high-density. And um, I think this whole idea that, you know, cities can be more compact, Singapore being a very good example of such a compact city, meant that the pinnacle at Duxton became an example of livable, high-density living. And whether it became iconic or not was also not really in our agenda. We just wanted to do something that would give an extra benefit to the well-being of the people, you know, uh, who's going to live there. I, I, this is the point where I say that it is really special because HDB sort of nodded and said, we're going to do a project like this. So when, whenever we go overseas to speak, whether it's in Chicago, in Germany, in Spain, and in Austria, we don't just speak about the project. We have to also speak about what HDB does. We have to speak about the housing policies of Singapore. And then it makes sense to all those who look at that project. Yeah, so the, the physical... Uh, icon that the pinnacle at Duxton represented was also in many ways uh, representative of the work that HDB and the Singapore government has done and the URA has done over the years to reach that milestone. It, it wasn't something that you could just reach with one step. It was many, many, many small steps leading to something like that, right? 50 years. 50 years, Except. you know, and like the millionth uh, public housing unit. And we, we felt like uh, it's really a privilege for us to be a part of that journey. And turning out to be an icon was like a super huge bonus for us. Yes. Of course, as architects, when we look at our own creation, we'll be like, yeah, this is super cool. Is there a particular feature that you like within the entire area? For me, whenever I, I walk on the 50th story Sky Gardens, I love the way that it's because of the shape of the plan you know, we, we had to make like many different turns and every time you make a turn, you see some different parts of the city and when you're walking in one direction versus if you're walking in another direction, you get a very different sense of the city. 
some days, if you're standing right at the top of the garden, you could actually see the, the mist or the clouds rolling in and you could then immerse in the clouds, you know. So I felt like there's something really poetic about being in the clouds, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm actually more a people person. So I, actually, it means a lot to me when I see how people enjoy the building. So even at the start, you could see the excitement during construction. There'll be a, I know there's a social media group from the buyers talking about, oh, it's coming up now. Did you see that block is coming up? And, and all the excitement. And we have many friends who actually bought into these units as well and one of them will have also like a community that's built up and they even have a nickname it's actually called Ducks Tea Ducks Tea yeah oh and and I mean all this is it indicates that you know people love being there so they do flourish I think that's that's really satisfying for me as an architect to see yeah we met a couple whose the, the wife gave up her job to start something in the food court or something like that, right? So being able to live there, work there, you know, start a family there. And for our friend, they were so sad when they, the family outgrew the unit and they had to move that, you know, they had this big party and like it was very like emotional. and th- So we, we felt like, you know, as architects, these were like moments, you know, where you become part of the life of a people and we created a space that people lift out their dreams and their desires and, and their ambitions uh, in, in this uh, whole complex. And it became more like a living village, more alive just because of the way people live there. And we thought that that's also like a huge blessing for the two of mm, us. Yeah. That's right. But the interesting thing, if you look from the sky, the pinnacle at Duxon is also in the shape of a question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, is it? What does that mean? What, yes, what are we questioning? Like, who am I? Where am I going? <laughs> but uh, the it was a lot to do with the shape of the site. Yes. In fact, the site is actually quite challenging because we are like on the fringe of a CBD, which meant that there was very little access and we couldn't cause traffic jam during construction. Uh, but also the longest facade, the longest boundary actually faced the west. West. You know, which meant that we had a lot of sun exposure. In in Singapore, we try to avoid the western sun uh, where you have the longest solar exposure. So we try to turn all the blocks as much as possible away from the western orientation. And then we try to make it as porous as possible. And we try to make every unit having distant views, unblocked views. So today, I think we are quite proud to say that, you know, every unit has some yes, kind of horizon view. view. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Is there anything that, you know, looking back, mm, maybe this could have been done better or mm, maybe you could have made some tweaks here and there, you know, like now that people have lived in it and you've seen it progress over the years? I think what I would have enjoyed was these public spaces having more participation, more higher quantum of, say, uh, commercial areas that allowed the residents to take part. Like, for example, if I wanted to start a music studio or Mm. an art centre or elder care or something like that, I had some more spaces like that. Especially, like more mixed use, probably. Yeah, like on the third storey, some more communal spaces, some more spaces that people could you know, put in their creativity mm. and make it come alive, you know. But the interesting thing is that 
Actually, we did create a framework. If you said, can we add it on now? Then I say yes, that there are a lot of spaces that we could still plug in these things. So, it, you know, it's maybe something uh, that can happen over time. Um, HGB can think, okay, maybe if we relook at all the, the, the communal spaces, what else can we do? How else can we upgrade? I think it's it's still a possibility. So there's still scope to make changes yeah. and so tweaks here and there. So one of the things that we do as architects is to actually um, give as much flexibility for growth. You see us talking about it, about how you can age in place in your unit. And the overall development should also have that possibility. And I think it does. How do you think your designs have like influenced public housing? Especially like, you know, like pre Duxton and post Duxton. Like, have we, you seen a shift? We do know that, you know, that artificial hill that we talked about from the ground to the third story. Prior to that, there wasn't a, a definition of that in URA. Yeah. And I think this whole idea of sky gardens also took off in a very big way yeah. post Pinnacle Duxton. So, all the sky gardens <laughs> you see in the new development, um, so sky garden definition by URA also came after that. I think. The Pinnacle Duxton broke some of these sort of barriers that then allowed uh, it to be observed and then to be evolved into sort of new typologies, you know. And I think the whole Dawson area, you know, they have uh, buildings like with sky gardens and all that. That came uh, shortly after the Pinnacle Duxton. But the density never quite reached this level. And I think that's simply because the Pinnacle Duxton is located in somewhere with high density. And I feel like maybe Singapore is ready for another such a high-density project, like a public housing project, soon. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a very big project. It would be huge. It would be huge, huge, bigger now than then. <laughs> and just now you mentioned that um, lots of people overseas are also interested in Pinnacle, even today. Like, what is intriguing from like an outsider point of view? Because from as Singaporeans, we see all the time, we might not think so much about it, but from an outside perspective, what do they find it interesting? The fact that, I mean, if you look at overseas or you look at the UK, whenever you talk about council housing, right, you know, that's a lot of problems. A lot of social problems actually happen at the council housings. And um, the other thing is when they hear that kind of density, it's unimaginable. We actually presented to a group of friends in New Haven, Connecticut. And this is the kind of comments that come, oh my goodness, it must be so horrible. 1,480 homes. I don't think I can stay there. But then we start showing them the photographs and the images and what it really feels like. Or when we bring people around to visit, I, I think it's, it's a huge eye-opener for them. Mm. For me, I think one of the interesting things is we will tell people at this density, first of all, we will tell them that, you know, if every <laughs> if every city in the world were to be like Singapore, we would only need a thousand such cities because technically we can design it for 7, 7.5 million, no problem. And if we had a thousand of that, it's 7.5 billion, which is like the, the world's population. And we would only need the land area of, say, Texas or twice like France or something like that or twice of Italy and Japan. And that's a very small land area, which made people think uh, very differently about cities and how much land area you can consume. Then we start to say that, well, if everyone lived in a building like the Pinnacle at Duxton, then the whole world could 
shift into, we went to Frankfurt and we said that the whole world could shift into the state of Hess where Frankfurt was located. Oh no, you were in Chicago and you told, oh, the whole of America can just move to Florida. <laughs> I don't think they were very amused. Yeah, But in, if you take Singapore, for example, you could just build a very, very skinny building on top of the MRT track. That means every single building like the Pinnacle at Duxley have 50 stories with Sky Gardens. You go downstairs, you take the MRT to the next part of town, and that's all you need. Leh. To house Singapore. Oh, to house Singapore. Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all you need, mm. you know, to house the entire Singapore. And the rest can be jungle and shopping malls. <laughs> <laughs> so when we, we, we actually brought that to Venice, to the Venice Biennale as well. And we basically showcase a sliver of Singapore, the entire stretch of Singapore, to show we're 70% still green. I mean, if you only hang out in Orchard Road, then it's going to feel built up, right? But we're not that dense. When you guys like look at Pinnacle now, like what comes to mind? You know, you know when friends and family say, hey, that's the building you designed. Like how, how do you feel about it? And like what sort of uh, reflections do you have? We feel really blessed and that opportunity has opened a lot of other opportunities for us. And um, I think for me, it's it's gratefulness. Yeah, I think for, for me, I just thank God that, you know, we were able to <laughs> even have the opportunity to do this. And I thought, thank God that we pulled it off. <laughs> do you hope the building will stand for? Because I mean, everyone knows that HDB is on 99 year lease, right? I, I hope at least for the next 99 years. <laughs> well, that's an, actually, that's an interesting question because if you want to talk about sustainability, right, um, then um, really you have to look at how uh, we look at um, old buildings, how you can do adaptive reuse maybe. So that would be part and parcel of that sustainability uh, conversation. I, I think the way Pinnacle at Duxton has been built, it could last for a long, long time. Mm. You know, we, I mean, it's, in the world today, we have buildings that are, you know, thousands of years old as mm. well. You know, hundreds of years, thousands of years. Yep. So, think about the carbon that's in there now. <laughs> <laughs> so certainly moving forward the practice would be to keep more of it's like we are now custodians of carbon carbon that has been used to build our cities what do we do with this carbon instead of just putting it out in the air or putting it into landfills or something like that could we think about keeping them for as long as possible and then um, maybe adding on to it, you know. So maybe the Pinnacle at Duxton could have a second life or a third life. It doesn't have like. to stay looking like that, but that is something to think about. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap for this podcast by The Street Times. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. If you resonate with the points raised, do share this podcast episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to read more of my articles on housing data and trends in Singapore, there is a link in the podcast text description below. Thanks for listening. This is one of two podcast episodes featuring full interviews with key architects who explain how HDB designs for Singapore's public housing flats have evolved over the decades. They are linked to a special infographic by The Straits Times. You can find the link to it in our show notes. 
That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.